You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, my name is Cheryl Racinos. I wrote a book called Hindsight, Coming of Age on the Streets of Hollywood. Cheryl Racinos is a family medicine physician living in Los Angeles. She holds bachelor's degrees in sociology and cell and molecular biology, a master's degree in education, and a medical degree. She regularly travels to Mexico with the UC Irvine branch of the Flying Samaritans to volunteer in their free clinic in Testarazzo, and she works closely with the shelter My Friend's Place in Hollywood to help youth transitioning off the street to enroll in college. Hindsight is the gripping memoir of Cheryl's teenage years. At 13, she stole $250 and ran away from her dysfunctional home in North Carolina, arriving in California to scrape together a life on the streets of Hollywood. Over the course of several years, Cheryl struggles to complete high school, find work, find shelter, and survive even as she mourns the murder of a friend and avoids predators who exploit homeless youth. Her story reaches an urgent pitch when she becomes pregnant, still homeless, about to bring new life into her world. I started writing pieces of the book perhaps 10 or 15 years ago. There were some excerpts that I had written and saved on my computer, and I wasn't really sure what to do with them, but they were stories that I felt like I needed to share with the world. These were stories about some of the things that had happened to me when I was very young, and others were stories from when I was living on the streets in Hollywood. I always thought that my book would only focus on everything that happened when I was 17, because in my mind, everything that was the most relevant happened at that age. I always look back at that year as the hardest year of my life. But when I sat down and started to tell the stories, I realized that the story began much earlier when I was a little kid. It took me perhaps 10 or 15 years total to get the whole book on paper, but when I really sat down and started writing it, it was about six months. I had compiled small portions of my book for many years, and then I wanted to know if I could really make this happen, so I went to a physician writing conference at Harvard in April of last year. And when I was there, I was a part of a small group of physicians who wanted to work on memoirs, And we had to send excerpts from our books in advance to the class for our instructor to read. And when I got there, the instructor said, everyone's going to read their story out loud. And I hadn't expected that. And it was a little bit scary because the part that I had sent in was one of my most challenging parts in the book. So I waited until it was my turn. And I read my section out loud. And the whole time I'm looking down at my paper and crying and When I finish, because this is the first time I've ever said these words out loud, I look up and everyone else in the room was also crying and I realized this book did matter and I needed to tell my story. And that was my first step towards feeling brave enough to tell the world what had happened to me. When I came back home from that conference, I was already enrolled in two classes at UCLA Extension and one of them was for story structure and one was for memoir writing. And I kind of hijacked one of the classes to also be memoir writing, and I developed my story structure around, you know, the principles of developing a story because memoirs are written sort of like fiction. And I pulled together all my ideas and 
I got some great criticism, and the criticism was very open and honest, and it helped me to shape my path and figure out how to write the book. Every single week, they gave us assignments, and I would write much, much more than what was due for the week because I was inspired to finally tell my story. I had a way to tell it, and they were giving me like the recipe guide. As soon as the class ended, I continued writing, and every day I would go to Starbucks for two hours before my 12-hour shift at the hospital, and the next day I would get up and do the same thing, and, and then I would do it again the next day. And so every day, everywhere I went, I took my laptop with me. And I wrote until I felt like I had the whole story on paper. Every day when I sat down to write, I was limited mostly by time. And so I would get as many words onto paper as I could. And the amount that I was able to write varied. Sometimes I was very inspired and I would write perhaps one or 2,000 words in just a short setting. And then other times I would go back to reread sections I'd written before and I would try to make corrections and delete three sentences and add two more chapters. So I wasn't very good at taking away, but I kept adding to the story because there were so many side stories that needed to be told to explain what happened to me over those years. Over the summer, the book was starting to come together, and I was fortunate because my kids were finally out of school for the summer. I have three kids, and my youngest was 14 at the time. And on my days off, she would go with me to Starbucks and sit next to me. And I'm not really sure what she was working on on her computer, but eventually she decided she wanted to see what mom was writing. And I printed it out for her. And even though it was only about three-fourths done, she took the book and she went through line by line and started making corrections and telling me, Mom, you didn't talk about this yet. You can't refer to it. And asking more in-depth questions like the most skilled editor would ask at 14 years old. So... I was so impressed with all of her questions, and I went back and I looked at all of her feedback and added in as much as I could to explain the parts that she said didn't make sense. And that was important for me because she was the first person who read my entire story, and it deepened our relationship. It was really cool because she knew a lot of the details earlier on as she was growing up because she's gone with me when I volunteered in different places. But this was really special because she knows parts about me that most people don't, and she was able to give great insight. And one day when I was coming home, she texted me and said, Mom, I got to the part where you met Dad, and I'm crying. I really hope it works out. And so I texted her back and said, of course it works out. He's sitting upstairs. Go talk to him. <laughs> when I was writing the book, it became obvious to me that a lot of the things that I thought I had healed from had only been superficially covered up. I had done a really good job of moving forward and moving on with my life, but I hadn't really analyzed a lot of the things that I had gone through and a lot of the traumas that I had suffered as a child. And when I put them all on paper, it was kind of shocking because looking back, it, it almost feels like I was telling someone else's story. I've come so far and it's shocking in so many ways when I sit down and look at the paper and realize, you know, not only did my mom abandon us, not only was my dad making choices that I would never make with my own children, but... I went into hospitals and juvenile detention, and I was incarcerated for 10 months, and I ended up on the streets, and yet here I am. I get to be a physician, and I get to be a mother, and all of my kids are doing very well. 
And whenever I look at them, I realize, you know, it's 100% what I put in as a mother and how I take care of them. And for some reason, that was lacking for me. I'm not really sure why my parents made the decisions that they made, but when I put it on paper, it was very hard to realize the, the vast differences in my upbringing with my kids' upbringing. And I'm grateful that I was able to make better choices, but it's also quite sad. When I sat down to edit the book, it was challenging because on my first write, every story was included and every real name was included. And I had to decide what was appropriate to share and what was my story to tell. And I removed any stories that weren't really my story to tell and didn't really add to the direction of where I was taking the book which meant that I left out some very important stories, but they really weren't my stories to tell. I changed a lot of names and descriptors, and so sometimes when I even look at the book and its final product, I have to remember the actual name of the person instead of the name I gave them in the book. I did have one friend from many years ago, Michelle, who is still a very good friend of mine today, and I asked her to read over her parts in the book before I published And I kept getting cute text messages from her where she would read sections of the book and say, I forgot about that. And you have a really good memory. And it was funny because as I went through the process and as she read through what I told for our stories, we realized that our stories were almost polar opposites. Where I was singled out, she was ignored. Where I got in trouble, she didn't, and then there were other things I got away with, and she would get in trouble. And it was the most interesting story, seeing how both of us grew up alongside each other in very different ways. There were people that I grew up with and spent a lot of time with in my childhood, but their stories were very personal, and they've made amends with their families. And so I didn't feel like adding them into my story would be appropriate because it might start more issues and not bring about the healing that I was looking for. My purpose in writing the book is to give people a clear understanding of what it looks like to see childhood trauma and to see a child who everyone identified as a kid who was at risk, but not very many people stood up and did things to help. And as I went through the book, I wanted to make sure that if I told a story about a friend or another person that I knew who went through something traumatic, it was important and relevant towards telling my story so that I could further people's understanding of what at-risk and homeless kids go through and show the real dangers of living on the streets. I did tell a story about my friend who was murdered on the streets, and I told that very carefully and with great compassion because I had met her father and I had made a decision to not say where she was and the next week she was murdered. And I wanted to explain my side of this because I had no way of knowing what was coming. But everyone sees everything differently. And looking back as an adult, I still don't know what decision I would have made because I didn't know what her home life was and the lens I saw everything through was that of a child who couldn't trust her parents. So there was no way I was going to tell a father where her child was if I didn't know why she had left. But other stories I didn't include because I didn't feel like it was relevant to tell the world secret things that people had told me 
that really didn't push the story forward. When I was at the Harvard Writing Conference and I read that first piece to the group, one of the things that struck me was one of the other physicians in the group said that I had a really good way of capturing what it was like to be a teenager. And I thought about what he had said over and over again because that was exactly what I was aiming for. And it makes sense to me because I have teenagers and I taught high school to teenagers for eight years. And as a physician, I've always loved working with teens and, you know, younger people because I see so much hope with them. And so it wasn't hard for me to find a way to write things from a teenage perspective because I really do understand what it's like to be a teen and not be heard. And so when I sat down and wrote my stories, I tried to channel back to that time period when no one heard me so that now they will. And now, not only will they hear me, but they'll look at other people differently, too. When I was writing the book, I had a lot of ideas about who would need to read this book. And I kept thinking about all of the times that I presented at fundraisers or spoke to people who were considering helping homeless youth when I was working alongside the people from my friend's place in Hollywood. And a lot of the questions they asked me were so very basic that it showed me that they really didn't understand the experience that the kids are going through. So as I wrote the book, I wanted to find a way to bring the reader into my environment and show them exactly what it was like with no apologies, no asking for permission. And I told them my story and it was very honest and very open and very painful. And there are things I did that were very stupid. I've had readers tell me that as they went through the book, they were shouting at it, saying, no, don't go with that person. Don't listen to that person. Because I made some really stupid choices. But I was honest because all of the choices were a sum total of who I was and how I got off the streets. And I felt like it was very important to show the whole story so people could see what all the barriers are for kids to getting their lives in order. And so if we see what those barriers are, perhaps we can start to eliminate them and find solutions. When I was almost finished with the book, I had a classmate in one of my classes at UCLA Extension who mentioned to me that perhaps my dad came off as a really good father and I was just a spoiled teenager. And I took a step back and thought about which stories I had told to that class versus what I had told to my other class that I was in. And I dove deeper and I wrote more detailed versions of some of the things that had happened because I needed to tell the whole story and not just what had happened when I was 17. And as I started writing all those stories, I realized I needed to go back and do a deeper edit. And I added in a lot of stories from when I was a little kid and showed the clues that I was starting to pick up on that something was wrong in my family. And after I pulled it all together, I went through and tried to see if there was anything else that was missing or any other stories that I needed to add. And I sent it to my siblings, but none of them opened the book. So I moved forward and hired an editor. And after she edited it, I took a look at it. And I was so grateful that someone else had gone through and read the whole book cover to cover and decided that 
it was well put together because I wasn't going to have feedback from my siblings, but I sent the rough draft to my sister-in-law, who had married into my family after everything had happened. And I really hadn't realized why I'd always been a mystery to her because I hadn't put two and two together that she married after I was gone. And I hadn't gone to the wedding, and I hadn't been involved in those early years when she was first dating my brother. And when she read through the book, she gave me some great feedback. And the most overwhelming thing that she kept saying was, I can't believe you're still alive. I can't believe something didn't happen to you. And when I went back and I looked at the book after she had gone through it and the editor had gone through it, it made sense to me. And I took out a few more details that I felt still didn't tell my story. And I added in extras. And every time I opened the book, I ended up with a couple hundred extra words. So I finally stopped. And I had a few more people read it. And then I published. I sent queries to several agents and publishing companies. And when I say several, I mean quite a bit. And I didn't hear back from anybody. And I took a long, hard look at what self-publishing meant because I'd heard about it, but I didn't think I would do it. And as I started reading more and more about how to self-publish and what the process was, I looked back at my life and I realized that I've never followed the rules. I didn't graduate high school correctly. I went to a continuation high school and I didn't walk on stage. I transferred to university instead of going direct. I had my first kids before I got married. I went to a Caribbean medical school. I chose family medicine, which is like the black sheep in medicine. And everybody seems to forget how much we actually know. We know a lot. And so every step along my path has always been the other choice, the other pathway that no one would have chosen except me. And so when it came down to deciding how I would publish my book, it made so much sense because I wanted total control of this book. I wanted to choose the title. I wanted to choose my cover. I didn't want someone else to decide which stories I should or should not include because this book is deeply personal. And so if I have another book in the future and I choose to go traditional for my publishing route, that's different. But for this book, this is my story, and it was very important to me to have total control over how I told it. When I was trying to figure out how to self-publish, I read a lot of blog articles that told which companies you're supposed to publish with and how that works. And that surprised me because I didn't realize that you go to multiple companies to publish. I ultimately chose Amazon, which is where a lot of books are sold, and then Ingram Sparks because that's how you get into brick and mortar stores. And so going through both of them means that bookstores can purchase my book and choose to sell it in their stores if they would like to. Afterwards, I found out that Amazon has really good templates and I use their templates to format my book. And then I begged my oldest daughter, who is an art major in college, to design my book cover with me. And we went from a handful of hand-drawn concepts that I had prepared to an actual photo shoot where we went down to Hollywood and took photos of my youngest daughter. And Michelle was the one that took the picture that we ended up using. And we modified it over and over again for weeks until we came up with something that we all liked. And when we put it all together, it came out as a book that I really liked. I love the cover. I love what my daughter did with the back. I gave her my idea and she made it work perfectly so that it's exactly what I envisioned. And so I was able to use all the templates they designed and then make it mine 
in a very, very personal way that wasn't too challenging. And then as soon as I had the book ready, there's another format on their website that showed me how to make an ebook. And it was surprisingly very easy. I probably spent about two or three hours going through and modifying it to make it look good. And then I had an actual ebook. The day that the book came out, I was so excited. I was terrified, but I was so excited because this was my story and it was finally being released. And then as I'm driving my son to school, he hands me his phone and almost made me crash my car because he said, Mom, did you know Justin Timberlake just released a book called Hindsight Today too? (laughs) And so I lost it for a little bit and I went home and panicked and I thought about all the bad things that could happen because there's a famous star with the same book cover. And then I took a deep breath and I signed a copy for him and I took a picture and posted it on Instagram and I mailed him his own copy. So I hope that he reads it because we share a book title and a book birthday. I learned a lot about marketing and publicity when I put this book together. I researched different publicists that are located here in Southern California and I interviewed and selected a publicist and he helped me to get several interviews including print and online as well as a podcast interview that helped getting my name out there. And so that was an important step that I realized early in the process. I definitely needed to have someone out there helping me make this public. I also realized that marketing and publicity are not the same thing. And so I've been working on my own marketing and I've come up with a logo and we have a printed version of my book cover that we use as a photo booth at book signings. And I scheduled several book signings. Um, One of them, the first one, was at a public library where we rented out a room. And then I was able to do one at a private person's house, which is a good friend of mine. And I had several at little bookstores. I contacted a number of independent bookstore owners, and they offered to let me come in and present my book and ask if people wanted to get book copies signed. So there was a lot of research that I had to do and a lot of emails that I sent out that went unanswered. But it reminded me a lot of my days back when I was applying to medical school. All it takes is one yes. All you need is one person to say, yes, you can come and you can present your book and you can talk about it to the world. I've had some great opportunities because of it. And I recently got to speak with residents at one of the local hospitals and tell them about my story and share my book with them. And I think that's important because those are the people I'm trying to reach. They're working on the front lines with kids who are very much like I was. And it was very inspiring to see how excited they were about finding ways to help kids. One of the issues with self-publishing is you are responsible for every aspect of releasing the book. And that includes marketing and sales and keeping track of what works and what doesn't work. I've tried Twitter ads and Facebook ads, and those were not very successful for me. I found that the best thing for me so far has been word of mouth. What surprised me several months later down the road after I've already released this book was the realization that I probably didn't give away enough free copies in the beginning so that people could read my book and talk about my book. I feel like it's a very important story, and I feel like as time goes on, it will get into all the right hands because this story needs to be told and shared. So moving forward, what I've done is I've started to prepare a small section of the book as like a comic book type of story showing one chapter 
and it's the chapter that I released early on on my blog um, entitled Red, and I'm hoping to have it ready soon because it'll be a visual understanding of what it is like to be a homeless kid and fighting for safety, and I'm hoping that that would be a way to spark the conversation and perhaps get people interested in the story. There are many different themes that I have to look at. I have to look at how the book is selling and who's looking at it, but I also have to keep an eye on different reviews that are coming out, and I've had a number of positive reviews, and there have been a few that made some very important comments. I had one that I took to heart because the young man was right. He said that I introduced a lot of characters in my book and then never really talked about them again. But that was the homeless experience. People came in and out of my life, and then I never saw them again. There was no explanation of where they ended up or if we would ever see each other down the road. And so my life was fragmented because that's the story that is true and honest. I don't know where a lot of these people ended up. And some of them, when I did some preliminary searching, I found them online. And I didn't feel it would be appropriate or safe to go and approach them now that my book is out there. When the book came out, the most important thing that I realized was that this book changed not only my dreams, but my kids' dreams. Within the first week of the book coming out, each one of my kids independently said that they were going to write their own book. So each one of them had a plan for a book that they were going to tell and share with the world. Because not only did they know it was possible, but they knew that there are methods and ways to make it happen, and mom knows how to do it, so mom can explain it. As I wrote the book, I had a lot of friends who knew that I was going through the writing process, and they kept reminding me to be good to myself because I was reviewing some of the hardest, most difficult memories of my life, and my closest friends knew some of the details. And they kept reminding me to add in time for self-care, because on top of writing the book, I was still working full-time, and I needed to make sure that I was taking care of myself. And so I made sure that I added in, sometimes, not often, times for self-care and self-reflection, because some of the stories that I told were very, very hard. And As I wrote them out, I sometimes needed to pause and really reflect on why I needed to tell the stories that I was telling. It was hard to write about being in juvenile hall, sitting back looking at it as a physician. It was hard to think about getting beat up by other inmates when I first arrived there and I was a 13-year-old kid and I was afraid. It was hard to tell the story about almost drowning when they sent us to a swim meet. I felt like I didn't have a voice, and so all of these stories go back to a time when I was not heard and nobody was asking the right questions. And so there were parts that were very painful and very difficult to write, but I found that as I got them out on paper and then went back and added more details and made sure that they were ready for the reader, I started to feel calmer and heal from what I had gone through. And by the time I got everything out on paper, I feel like I finally did something that I hadn't done for my entire life. And I finally forgave myself for a lot of the things that I did as a kid. Because my whole childhood, and when I was a teenager, everyone always painted me as a bad kid. And I believed them. 
And looking back now, in hindsight, as an adult who knows better and who has teenagers and who works with people who are damaged and traumatized, I know that it was not my fault. One of the concepts that I was trying to highlight in the book was that nobody really tried to figure out what was going on. At 13, when I stood in front of a courtroom and the judge wanted to punish me for running away to California, nobody stopped to ask why. And when my dad reacted the way that he did in the courtroom, and I abruptly stood up and said, I'll go to foster care, still, nobody asked why I would accept foster care over going home. And when I kept running away and kept leaving every placement they put me in, including escaping from a mental hospital because I wasn't staying there, nobody bothered to figure out what it was that was going through my head. I remember when the guards were taking me to drop me off at juvenile hall where I would stay for 10 months. They told me that I finally got what I wanted and they were very rough with me with their words and I guess they felt like they were giving me some kind of important speech about making better choices in my life but they weren't asking why or how to help and maybe they felt like their hands were tied because here I was and I was a kid and I'd gotten myself in a lot of trouble but no one asked what I needed someone to ask and I needed them to ask without interrupting me What I needed was for somebody to ask why I was leaving and what I needed and who I felt like I should live with. Because a lot of what was going on was related to the home environment because I was living with my dad and my first stepmother. And from the moment that she moved into our house, everything fell apart. But nobody asked. And I really wish someone would have because there probably wouldn't have been a book. But there is a book. And now looking back, I see that, you know, a lot of the time when we're trying to ask kids what is going on inside of them, we don't stop and listen. We don't like their answers. And so we interrupt them. And so instead of giving them a chance to really explain what's going on inside of them, we figure it out for ourselves and decide what it must be that's wrong with them. And we interrupt them, and we interject, and we don't hear them. And what kids who are struggling really need is a safe place. They need to look at the person and see that that person really cares. They need to hear questions that aren't coming from a questionnaire. If, if you're being asked over and over again the same routine questions that you're asked in every place you go to, you know that the person is just fulfilling a task. They're not trying to find out what's really going on. So what you need is somebody who is asking and giving you an opportunity to share without judging. And I touched on this in my book because there was a moment when I realized that I was getting what I needed from that program that I love so much in Hollywood, in my friend's place. And I didn't understand what it was at the time, but they were one of the pioneers in understanding trauma-informed care and how to really take care of kids who had been through very tough circumstances. What I knew as a teenager was that when they asked me a question, they let me speak. And if I said something completely stupid, they said, how are you going to achieve it? They didn't care if I said I was going to be an astronaut and I was blind. They would have asked me how I was going to do it. 
They wanted to know what my plan was. They didn't care if it didn't make sense. I would figure it out myself if I spoke it out loud. But they gave me a safe place to voice my opinions. And I feel like that was what was missing a lot of the time. Because whenever I tried to tell somebody what was going on, either they didn't listen, or they changed the subject, or they violated my trust. And if that happens enough, it shuts you down. So that by the time for me that I got back to Hollywood at 16, when you look at all the earlier chapters in the book, I'd already had my trust violated so many times that it would take a miracle to get me to trust any adult. And it took a long time. I spent an entire summer sitting on Hollywood Boulevard in a shirt that said F people because that's how I felt. And I could use better than sailor talk because I was angry. And some of the staff that look back at those years, when I've talked to them, they remember me being a very angry kid. And I lashed out. And I wasn't heard the way that I needed to be heard. Instead of trying to figure out why I was lashing out and why all the words I was saying were so angry, I was punished. And if you punish a kid over and over again for trying to express themselves, they shut down. And so I know that kids who are struggling need to find safe ways to communicate. But it doesn't just fall on the kid. There needs to be an adult who can hear, even if it's tough, even if the words they choose are not the words we want to hear. We need adults who are willing to listen, willing to ignore the bad words that might spark in a conversation and really hear what kids are saying because they deserve to be loved and they deserve to be safe. And that's why I wrote the book, because I need people to understand that what happened to me should have never happened. And I'm really hoping that it doesn't happen for more kids. But there's 2.2 million homeless teens and young adults in the United States right now. And so it's still happening every single day. And now, here's a reading from Hindsight. My pain needed an outlet, and I turned to what was familiar. I'd begun scribbling words on paper when I felt lost. Words became poems. Poems became a small booklet. I drew a cover page and imagined myself selling copies on the corner of Hollywood and Highland. Somehow, even at 17, I felt people needed to know how hard it was to be a homeless kid, on the streets one week, in a shelter the next. I'd started sitting on the giant cement construction blocks on Hollywood and Highland, debating between spanging, which is, which is asking people for their spare change, and selling those booklets. But I never made the photocopies, never prepared them, because I got scared someone would notice me. What if they noticed the not-quite-an-adult girl, perched on the cement rock on the corner, what if someone decided I was better back in the system when I'd fought for so long to avoid it? There was energy in the movement of tourists, locals, and the construction crew. The corner was changing, and I wasn't sure I was ready for all the commotion. The red line of the subway was being expanded, and construction crews were working day and night to connect downtown Los Angeles with Hollywood, and then to tunnel further to the San Fernando Valley. One of the new metro stops would be on the opposite corner, behind the chain-linked fences that the workers had set up. I sat on the cement block, pondering life. A notebook was often found in my hands, and words fell freely onto the pages as I counted down the days left of being 17. The poems chronicled my downfall. 
One took me back to lazy summers before my mom had gone crazy. Another showcased my alcoholic tendencies. Yet another screamed for independence against the outside forces that prevented me from moving forward. I must have been lost in thought, because I didn't see the security guard until he was standing next to me. The city had invested in a series of security guards to monitor traffic on the boulevard, specifically to keep the homeless kids moving and help beautify the city. You can't stay here, I heard a man say. I looked up, and my eyes met with those of a security guard that I'd seen a few times. He was in his late 20s, Hispanic, stern features juxtaposed with kind eyes. I'm writing, I told him, passing a page from my booklet to him. He scanned the page, saw the crude drawing of a woman drinking her liquor alongside my tragic poem. He sighed. You still can't stay here, he repeated. Sometimes it's hard, I said softly. Sometimes I can't keep moving, and I just need to stop. It's the weekend. There are no services anywhere tonight. I have nowhere else to go, I told him. Our eyes connected for a long moment. It was getting dark, and I knew I'd have to go somewhere eventually. But for that moment, I felt safe. I was on the corner, exposed, but a wild creature surrounded by many watchful eyes. I was untouchable. All right, I'll give you 30 more minutes, he told me. But then you have to go. I nodded, grateful for a brief reprieve from the endless walking. I didn't like walking without a purpose. I wished I'd been able to stay at the shelter, but I was constantly battling with my case manager, and he only saw one plan for me. I'd have to wait a few more weeks before trying again. I sat, staring at the foreign tourists, staring at the ground. Pink stars littered the sidewalks, and people traveled from afar to see a city that didn't match their expectations. Hollywood wasn't beautiful. It was dirty, lonely, harsh. Hollywood was a broken city, filled with sadness, invisible people, and the people that followed behind them with plans to exploit them. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andre Nikolaev. The Writers Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.